0: are the Mystery History Podcast. I am Allison, and welcome to episode 64, where we're going to discuss the Dexter copycat killer, who I actually did not know about until I watched an episode of uh, Psychopaths on Discovery. So I wanted you all to know about him as well. So um, just before we get started, I just wanted to let you guys know that um Jordan probably is not going to be coming back to the podcast. Uh, I know that the last few episodes we were together and everything was great. Uh, but he's just got a lot of things going on in his life, and I don't think that you know the the podcast is one that he can squeeze in right now. However, with that being said, um, that's not to say that he might not ever come back because he might uh, or that I might not get another. Post uh, to do this with because I think it really works better whenever you have two people to kind of bounce things off of each other. Um, but I really enjoy this podcast. Uh, being a mom, working a full-time job, all of those things I, I love also. But I really love true crime. I love the paranormal. I love digging into a case that I might not n- never have heard of before, or something that I have heard of, and getting the nitty-gritty details. That I might not have known before, and I really love sharing it. Um, my favorite part is doing the notes because I've always had a, a love of writing, and that kind of lets me get my creative outlet. You know, for for those things, I'm not big on art. I'm not big on you know all that stuff. I but I do love writing. So this might come, you know, this is kind of uh, fresh still for everybody. Um, However, I'm looking into like maybe creating a WordPress as well to go along with the podcast, but what really means the most is is your guy's support. I know that everybody loves Jordan, I love him too. He's my brother. Nothing will ever change that. um However, you know, sometimes people grow um apart on a different journey, and this is one that you know we've we've worked really, really hard on this podcast, and it's not perfect. Uh, never will be perfect, especially now, because he was more of the technical genius. Um, he he knew how to do all of those things. So that's something that I am trying to learn. And he was also very good at graphics and providing, you know, cover art for the, the podcasts that we were doing. So just all I ask is please try to be kind and bear with me. Um, I really want this to work. We've got 5,000 plus people on Instagram, Um, you know, we've got over 39,000 downloads. I really want this to work and I want to provide you guys content and it also, you know, is an outlet for me. So I I just hope that you guys realize that I'm doing the best that I can with what knowledge I have and you guys could just bear with me for a few episodes um, and deal with the content or the quality not being what you're used to. I would really really appreciate it. This year's kind of been hard. Uh you know, last year was COVID, this year we're kind of getting out of COVID, uh but some personal things have made it kind of difficult. So, I really appreciate your guys' kindness. Um so with that, let's let's move on. We I have one thing to announce business-wise. Uh we did get a new Patreon and His name is James, so shout out to James. Thank you so much. Uh, We have two page, and I'm going to keep saying we, um, but we are the Mystery History Podcast. You are the Mystery History Podcast, so I will still say we. Um, We do have the Patreon. There are two tiers. There's a $2 tier and a $5 tier. The $2 tier gets you um, a 10% discount to the store. I don't really know how that's going to be going right now. So if you want a t-shirt or some sort of merch, get it now. I might have to be switching some things over uh, to a website that I can have more control um, and know how to use. So get them while they're hot. Um, the $5 tier, oh, and you also get a, a, an episode the uh, week early and a bonus episode every Friday. The $5 tier, you get a 20% discount to the store and uh, a episode a week early and a, the bonus episode. So um, generally, it's just general, general support for the show. So anything you can do, I appreciate it. And we'll keep rocking on. And I'm hoping that it is better than ever. And I'm going to try everything I can to make sure that I'm providing um, good quality content for you guys, because I really love all of you. And I want this to work. So, so with that, let's get on to the story of the Dexter copycat killer. So I was sitting at home Friday and I was watching my discovery plus, which I know some people aren't like super pumped about because you have to pay for it. We got rid of cable. So instead of a cable bill, I spend like $5,000 million on all of these individual uh, subscriptions. <laughs> so I think maybe cable at this point would be cheaper, but this is where we're at. So I have Discovery Plus and I was watching, I believe it's a show called um, something, oh, I'm going to forget what it is, but something to do with psychopaths. Like, how do you know if somebody's a psychopath? And this story came up and it piqued my interest because it had Dexter in it and Dexter is one of my all-time favorite shows, minus the last episode, really the last season wasn't my ideal way. However, I like the fact that they left it open, which obviously we've got another season coming, and I'm so pumped because they have a chance to like completely redeem themselves, right? So I'm hoping that that's good, and that's supposed to be coming out November in My husband keeps asking me, why do we have Showtime? Because Shameless ended, and I love Shameless. And I'm like, well, we got to keep it because Dexter's coming, even though it's like not until November. But so for those of you who have never seen Dexter, basically, it's a show about Dexter Morgan, who's a blood spatter analyst for the Miami Metro Police, and he actually kills people in his free time. Okay, so these are typically almost always bad people. And most of the time, they're those that escape the law by some, you know, some fluke in our justice system. So one way or the other, he's going to get them, whether it be through the courts. And a lot of the times he's wishing that the courts don't get him so then he can go do his thing. Um, anyway, so with my love of this show, um, I didn't know all this time that there was a copycat killer. So I thought that maybe this is one that you guys didn't know about. All right, so we are going to talk about Mark Andrew Twitchell. Mark Andrew Twitchell, Twitchell was born on July 4th, 1979, in Edmonton, which is the capital of Alberta, Canada. Okay, he We don't really know too much about his childhood or his parents, but it's believed that he spent most of his time in the Midwest during his youth. He actually returned to Canada in the late 90s and started taking courses on television and radio at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, or NAIT, and graduated there in 1999. So some of his classmates remember him as a loner in school, but he did maintain a group of friends. One among them was a guy named Drew Kentworthy. Drew describes Mark as a good guy, but he wasn't The most trustworthy, okay? While doing group projects, Mark really did his part, but instead of owning up to the fact that he did absolutely nothing, he would make up a crazy story about, like, you know, my dog ate my homework, or I was abducted by aliens, or, you know, something crazy, and he lied about literally everything. One of the biggest lies that Mark told was, in 1999, when Star Wars Episode One came to theaters, Drew and Mark went to stand in a long line to get tickets. Because back in the day, kids, you used to have to stand in line to get tickets. You couldn't buy them on Fandango. You had to actually go there and buy them. And of course, Star Wars was a big deal. So they went to go stand in line to get tickets. And because of the long line and so many people, they decided that they wanted to start a charity fundraiser called the Standathon. And in this stand-a-thon, they would actually auction illustrations that were supposed to be conceptual drawings made by the production crew of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. That Mark had received somehow. Nobody knows how he received these, but he had them. And they were going to donate the proceeds to the Children's Wish Foundation of Canada. So that sounds like a pretty noble thing. After the fundraiser though, Drew realized that the illustrations were actually forged, so they weren't real. When he confronted Mark about it, Mark refused to admit that they were forged copies, that he still held to the fact that they were real. After graduating, Mark lived in the USA before returning back to Canada in 2008 after his second marriage. When he returned to Canada, he took up some sales jobs with a paper company and an alarm security system company. During this time, he decided that he wanted to make a fan film on Star Wars because he loved it so much. Since he didn't have technically formal training, he bought into a production crew and tried to learn on set how to produce a movie. His first film was Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion and was filmed on a green screen at NAIT in the summer of 2006. He used local artists as his actors and his film gained some online attention as they did a spot and they did a spot on the local news about it. In 2007, while it was in post-production, he decided his next movie would be Day Players, convincing investors to finance the project. While working on his movie, he also found a love for making detailed costumes of his favorite fantasy story characters. So cosplay. He was into cosplay. He created Bumblebee from the Transformers and actually won first place in the 2007 Halloween Howler, which was an annual rock and costume contest held by Edmonton Radio Station. So that's pretty cool. In September 2008, Mark wrote and directed an eight minute horror movie called The House of Cards in a rented garage that was inspired by Dexter, the TV series. And for those of you that don't know, Dexter was also a comic. And I have a comic of the first one of Dexter somewhere around here. It's pretty cool. So the story was about a killer who catfishes men off a dating website, tortures them, takes their money and their bank account info, and then kills them. The serial killer got away with the crimes by posting on the victim's social media to friends and family to think that they were okay and that they had just gone away to vacation. So they weren't actually missing. They were just in the Bahamas somewhere, sipping on umbrella drinks. So that so much is not, I don't really know how that was technically inspired by Dexter because it doesn't have too much to do with Dexter the series, but maybe just killing people, that's an interesting, you know, correlation. (laughs) So while he was making House of Cards, he had made the conscious decision that he actually wanted to become Dexter. He wanted to to become his favorite serial killer and not just play out some fantasy, um, you know, with making movies. He actually wanted to kill these people. So he took a page out of his own book and created an online dating profile with plenty of fish and made a, a fake profile there. I've been on plenty of fish, and I tell you what, it's pretty scary out there, folks. Make sure you're careful, because this kind of stuff could really happen. 38-year-old John Bryan, Johnny At- Attinger, Attinger, oh, that was tough, Attinger, was a 38-year-old who worked as an oilfield equipment manufacturer, and he loved technology. As he got older, he found a love for computers and then motorcycles and would spend his weekends writing them with his best friend, Dale. Johnny had started chatting up a cute girl named Jen, who was really Mark, and Mark convinced Johnny to pick him up at his garage on Friday, October 10th. Before Johnny met up with this so-called Jen, he decided to text some of his friends that he was going to be meeting a woman he'd been chatting with online. Very smart. Number one, always meet in a public place. Number two, make sure you tell your friends and you have like a code word. If you need to get out of something, they'll call you. Family emergency, gotta go. Bada bing, bada boom. There you go. You gotta make sure you have these plans. So the the person that he was chatting with, they were going to meet up and it was Thanksgiving weekend. Okay, so a lot of the restaurants were closed. And instead of going out somewhere he decided to go ahead and go to Jen's house instead. Dale told Johnny that he was concerned about him meeting at somebody's house he didn't know. Smart, Dale. You read the book on what to do with online dating. And he actually showed, Johnny showed Dale the picture of the woman that he's been talking to. And I guess the woman was super attractive. And Dale was kind of surprised that somebody that pretty would be chatting up Johnny, which is sad. But, you know, if things are too good to be true, most of the time it is. So Dale was even more suspicious of this Jen character because Johnny told him that she didn't give him an actual address of where her house was. He just kind of gave him directions to her home. Dale told Johnny to text him the address as soon as he arrived, so he knew where his friend was. Instead of texting, he received a call from Johnny, saying that the woman he was supposed to meet was not there, but that there was this strange guy in the garage filming a movie. Johnny hung up with Dale, who assumed that his friend would just go home and that he would talk to him the next day or later that week, but he never spoke to Johnny again. It's not really known as to why Johnny went back into the garage, maybe to confront Mark about why he wasn't who he said he was going to be, what was going on. But Mark took his opportunity and this time he was going to let his or he was going to he was going to kill for real. Okay? Mark bludgeoned and stabbed Johnny, cut him apart, partially burned him, and dumped his remains in a garbage bag into a storm sewer. After the murder, Mark wrote down the gory details in a file he labeled, My Progression as a Serial Killer, SK Confessions. Around 7.30 that night, Dale received an email from Johnny. So this is after the murder had already occurred. Dale gets this weird cryptic message from supposedly Johnny, telling him that Jen was home and that he was actually going back to meet her. So... No mention of the weird guy in the garage. She just wasn't home. She's home now. He's going there. So he called Johnny's phone to make sure that he was safe. But the phone rang and went to voicemail. Dale went to bed and the next day tried to call Johnny again, but he still didn't pick up. Sunday, Dale and Johnny had a motorcycle ride planned, but Johnny never showed up to that, which made Dale grow very concerned because that wasn't like his friend. If he said he was going to be somewhere, he would be there. He loved motorcycles. He'd never miss a ride. Dale and his wife drove to Johnny's house to see if he was still there. They rang the doorbell, banged on the door, but Johnny didn't answer. They tried all the doors, but they were locked. So they went into the garage and his red Mazda hatchback was gone, but his motorcycle was there where he left it, but it was uncovered. And Johnny was very particular about his motorcycles. And anytime he was not riding them, he always covered them. So that was kind of weird to Dale. The next day was Monday, October 13th, 2008. And Dale received an email from Johnny. Now this email really didn't make any sense. So this email reads, Hey there, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen, who's offered to take me on a nice long tropical vacation We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica. Phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically. See you around the holidays, Johnny. Hm. That's a little suspicious. Dale did not believe that this email came from Johnny. Um, he hated hot weather and the email was worded in a way he didn't typically speak. Dale responded to the email with a lie to see if he could catch whoever was writing it. He replied to the email asking who would pick up Johnny's brother from the airport, even though he didn't have a brother, uh, but he did not get a response back. Dale reported Johnny missing to the Edmonton police department, but because of his age, there was little police could do. So it's not like a runaway or anything like that. It's just maybe he really did go on vacation. While no one could get in touch with Johnny It actually showed he was online. So he deleted his Plenty of Fish profile, changed his MSN screen name, and even began posting social media updates. Dale thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he really is okay. Maybe he just really fell in love with this chick and they're out living their life. Johnny was not responding still, though, to any of the messages him or his friends were sending. So he went back to the police to tell them that they needed to list him as a missing person. Because, yeah, the social media gave him a little bit more hope, but Johnny would always text him back. The police told Dale they needed more evidence to prove he was missing and was just not on vacation or away for the holiday. They searched Johnny's home and saw that they were, um, there was uncovered food in the fridge, dirty dishes in the sink, and his luggage, toiletries, and passport was still in the apartment. So it didn't look like anybody who had gone away. You know, you wouldn't leave those things unkept before you leave on a vacation for a month. A week after Johnny had disappeared, Dale was finally able to file the missing persons report and the police started searching for him. At first, police believed that Johnny had met someone online, fallen in love, and probably went on the the Costa Rica trip. It showed he had activity online, updated statuses, and even emailed his friends. They started checking long stay car parks near airports and checked with some of the airlines to see if they had heard or seen Johnny, but no one had seen him. The police started talking to excuse me, to Johnny's friends and co-workers to see if anyone had seen or spoken to him lately, with the conclusion that the last known sighting of Johnny was Friday night before he when he vanished. Okay. So the police started believing that. More that okay, maybe, maybe he's missing. Dale gave him the address that Johnny had texted him when he went to uh, the garage to meet Jen. Um, and so they headed over there to see what they could find. Police arrived at the garage, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It was just a white two-car garage with rolling doors. They spoke to neighbors in the area to see if they had seen anything that night or could give them any details on the property. They found out that the garage was part of the rented house in front, but neither of the people that lived there were named Jen. They found out that the garage was being leased to a film director named Mark Twitchell, who had been using it as a movie set. The windows were blacked out to stop light from getting in during takes, so the police couldn't see in any of the windows, or there was there was no way they could see inside the garage. They called Mark, and spoke to the police, um, who spoke to the police and cooperated with them. He told them that he didn't know anything about someone named Johnny, and he hadn't seen him that night. They asked Mark to come down to the garage and let them inside the space. When he arrived, Mark showed officers around the back of the garage to let them through the back door. When they turned the corner, he stopped, because there was a broken padlock holding the door closed. Mark told the police that the padlock wasn't his, And that someone had changed it out for another, but it wasn't secured properly and was quickly broken. When they entered the garage, they smelled the strange smell of something that had been burned a long time ago. In the middle of the room was a large stainless steel table with a receipt on top showing several cleaning supplies like paper towels, bleach gloves, and plastic sheets. The scene was disturbing, but Mark was trying to film a horror movie, so the items in the garage weren't completely out of place. Okay, so it's not like they went in your house or my house and there's a kill table sitting there. I mean, this was set up for a movie set. So after they checked out the garage, they asked Mark to come down to the station to give a formal statement, and he agreed. By the time they sat down, it was almost 3 a.m., so it was late. Um, Mark was happy to provide the police with as much info as he could. In the interview, The police noticed that Mark had a lot of energy for someone being up at 3 a.m. I mean, if you had called me down to the police station, probably take a little nap. Um, He spoke to them about his career in film, his wife, Jess, and his eight-month-old daughter, Chloe. He told the police he had made some Star Wars fan fiction films in the past and was now funding his film through investors. The investigators thought it was strange that Johnny went missing from the same place a bloody horror movie was being filmed, but the police didn't see Mark as a suspect, and when they played the interview tape back, they found no signs of him lying to investigators. Now, remember the plot of House of Cards. Man lures man off dating website, kills them for money, and poses them as them on social media pretending they're still alive, okay? So that's a spoiler alert, folks. <laughs> uh, police requested a warrant for the garage to search for evidence that Johnny had been there, but the judge denied the requesting that they didn't have enough evidence of, that a crime had been committed. Since they couldn't get a warrant, they went back to Mark asking if they could take another look in the garage, and he agreed. Mark then proceeds to tell them about a series of strange events that occurred in the prior few days. He told them that items had been stolen from his car, and he found his front door unlocked. He said that while sitting in a car uh, car parked in his driveway, a stranger knocked on the window and asked him if he wanted to buy a red Mazda hatchback. The man told him he was selling his car because a woman he had met was taking him on vacation, and he didn't need it any longer. How convenient. Mark told the police he had bought the car for $40 from the man. I mean, $40, that is a great deal. Wouldn't you think that that'd be a little fishy? Investigators asked Mark to come back down to the station to write a statement about the break-in and the stranger with a car, and he agreed. He wrote an eight-page essay. We're not talking about a paragraph here, folks. Eight pages about the incident and told police that he believed that whoever had broken into his home took several items including trash bags, paper towels, and duct tape. He said that he thought something had also been burned in his backyard. So all of this stuff, (laughs) super fishy, okay? So now the police are on his trail. They know that this guy is lying and nobody writes an eight-page essay from all of the details of his life. And then somebody sells you a car for $40, like all of these things, they just, they do not add up. So they believe that Mark has something to do with this crime, 100%. Mark's long story was all a lie. They told Mark that they knew he had something to do with Johnny's disappearance, which of course Mark was like, no way, I did nothing. I just bought a car for $40. By 6 a.m. that morning, the investigators ended the interrogation. They knew that he was involved in the case, they didn't have enough evidence to keep him at the station. Instead, they were able to seize his car and they were able to seize his house. And they put a 24-hour detail on him to track his movements. So this is the best. Typically, with the cases that we talk about, the police make some sort of mistake. This is the smartest thing I've ever heard. can't keep him at the station, but you can seize stuff and that way he can't destroy anything. And you can get all the evidence you need to finally be able to arrest him. So, good job, Edmonton police. Officers searched Mark's home and found a lot of science fiction memorabilia and film posters, which, I mean, (laughs) people came into my house, too. They'd be like, this girl, something's wrong with her. They found books about forensic science, serial killers, and a guidebook to Costa Rica, where Johnny supposedly went. There was a pile of Blank postcards and a black hockey mask with gold stripes on it that also seemed to be splattered with blood. In Mark's car, police found dozens of post it notes. Most of them were like grocery lists or honey-do lists, but then they found one that was interesting. One post it note read, Ship eBay items, cod piece helmet, kill room clean sweep, and fuck Tracy. So I don't know who Tracy is, but he doesn't like her. A bag found in the car had a military knife stained with blood. And in the trunk, they found a blood stain on the carpet and a steak knife that had also had stained blood on it. They uncovered a laptop in the car, which included two temporary files. One was named SK Confessions and you can actually read this document if you Google it. Um, I found a, a scribe, I think is where I found it, where it gives you like, you know, like Kindle where you can read a preview. Well, I read a preview of it, which is the first four pages, and wow, he just really screwed himself because I have like, I have the synopsis of what it basically says that I'll read to you guys, but all of this evidence is so damning, like they've got him. They have got him. So And the first, this is the first four pages that I read, but you can go and you can pay to read the entire 35 page uh, document that they found. Okay. So in this document, the first four pages, he said that he had made a decision to become a serial killer. And whenever he finally made that decision, he got this rush of euphoria. He felt no emotions of empathy or sympathy toward other people and did not feel guilt. So he felt no badness for doing any of this stuff. He stated that he would use online dating to rope in victims and that he would choose people whose entire lives he could infiltrate and eliminate evidence that he ever existed. He chose middle-aged single men who lived alone. He said that it would be easy to manipulate them as they typically think with their dicks, which is not untrue, and would have more money in their bank account he could take advantage of. Living alone, there would be no way for someone to identify him. He's a serial killer for profit. He's no non-profit bitch. He likes to find people that have lots of money, which middle-aged men with no family, they probably got some good money, and he can rob them after he kills them. He needed to find a location to do this, so he mentions the garage that he had rented and said that it was in a neighborhood where most people don't speak English, so they wouldn't ask him any questions. He blocked out the windows and took down the house number so nobody could identify it or look inside. He created a shopping list that included a street hockey mask that he would add gold streaks to, a basic dark green hoodie, disposable overalls, and a plastic bag. He bought a hunters gaming kit to dismember the body and bought an 8-inch bleeding hunting knife as his kill knife. He didn't want to torture them. He didn't want them to scream. He just wanted to get it over with. He bought several rolls of plastic painter's sheeting to prep, six rolls of packing tape, six rolls of duct tape, and two boxes of contractor-grade hefty bags. He purchased a sun baton and a realistic-looking airsoft pistol that he could fake as being real. He used repurposed materials that he found to build a custom 4 by 6 foot by six foot table with stainless steel finish and angle, angle iron edging and bought a 45 gallon steel drum to burn people in. He downloaded an IP address blocker so the police couldn't track him down while he used plenty of fish or posted on these people's um, Facebooks and he created all new email addresses and dating site profiles. As soon as the profile goes up he said Within t- 24 hours he receives floods of messages. He reviewed the messages and then chose who he wanted. So he just screwed himself so bad, so bad. This document, obviously, a lot of the stuff you check off the, the, the check it off the box there. He's got it, he wrote about it. That is a confession, and the police use it as one. So the journal also noted another target that had managed to escape a week before this, the second murder here. The direct document said that the man arrived at the garage and was attacked with a stun gun but didn't go down. He fought his attacker and drove away in his car. So this is the first time the police has ever heard that there could be another person that could co- corroborate the story of the, the hockey mask and all of that stuff. They thought maybe that he might have been married, which is why he didn't want to report the attack. And with the document they that was discovered, they were able to finally get a, a warrant to search the garage legally. Because now I don't think Mark's going to be letting them in. When they arrived, the garage was spotless. In the police search, the officers did find a stun gun, a BB gun that looked like a real pistol, duct tape, handcuffs, and a lead pipe wrapped in tape that was covered in dried blood. It appeared that at one point, the whole garage was drenched in blood that led forensics to believe that someone was savagely beaten to death. There were tons of cleaning products, masks, overalls, coveralls, all that stuff. They also found the game processing kit and they knew that Mark wasn't a hunter. October 31st, Mark was finally arrested and charged with first degree murder and attempted murder. Police didn't believe that Johnny was the first person to visit the garage, and when the press conference was held, they showed the hockey mask and urged any of other victims to come forward. Two days later, the first person that escaped finally did. Gillis Tredelolt saw the report and went to the police and told them that he was attacked by the, the same man wearing that mask in the garage. Mark had created an online profile named Sheena and had convinced Gillis to pick him up for a date on October 3rd, 2008, from the garage he had rented for his films. He chose Friday for the date because he had an alibi. He was supposed to be visiting a counselor, and obviously he really needed the counselor. When Gillis entered the garage, um, Mark attacked him with a stun baton and he was wearing the hockey mask. Gillis was able to free himself during the struggle and ran away. He was embarrassed about the encounter and did not report it to the police. After Mark had failed his first attempt, he waited a few days and created Jen, which then got Johnny. Now, with all of this evidence, the case was quickly building against Mark, but there was still the question of where Johnny's body was. Police spent months trying to locate his remains, but they weren't able to find him. 18 months later, Mark finally told police where they could find him. Johnny's body was found in a sewer drain two blocks from Mark's parents' home. Once Mark's arrest had been made public, his wife, Jess, filed for divorce. She hadn't seen him since the day that the police had seized the house. She also found out that he had been sleeping with his ex-girlfriend and had been talking to other women online. So maybe that's who the post-it note... uh, Tracy. Maybe that was Tracy. (laughs) So he also lied to her about his job. He had quit several months before, and instead of going to work in the morning, he spent the day at the garage or he went to his parents' house during his work hours and then would come home during his regular scheduled time. That is shitty. At the trial, Mark pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder of Johnny Atlinger, saying it was self-defense instead. So this is his story, okay? The storyteller. He said that the attacks were supposed to be a PR stunt, okay? His victims were meant to escape for his movie, but Johnny had fought back and Mark accidentally killed him. Whoops. Yeah, right, dude. No one in the jury uh, bought his story, and only after five hours of deliberation, they found him guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. He was transferred to Saskatchewan Federal Penitentiary, where he is still at to this day. He is not eligible for parole until the year 2036. In December 2012, um, CBA did an interview with Michael C. Hall, who plays Dexter, on his thoughts about the impact of the show had on creating Mark Twitchell as the serial killer. And this is what Michael C. Hall had to say. He said. I don't know. All I can say to that, it's horrifying to entertain the notion that something you did inspired that. I immediately find myself saying, well, he would have found something else to inspire him, but I don't know. To be perfectly honest, it's a troubling thing to consider. Hall told the reporter that he wouldn't stop making Dexter because someone had become fixated with his character in a negative way. He said, I try to tell myself that their fixation Fixative nature would have done it one way or the other, but it seems that Dexter had something to do with it. It's horrifying. Twitchell's fondness for the show Dexter was well documented during his trial. Twitchell even had a Facebook profile under the name of Hall's fictional TV character. So that's a bummer. I mean, everybody's got to ruin it, you know, for everybody. But I'm glad that they didn't stop making this show because I do believe that he's right. No matter what, If it wasn't Dexter, could have been something else. It's just like people who blame somebody killing people for violence in in video games. I was playing GTA whenever I was like seven, okay? And I know right from wrong. And I think that's the most important thing. And to psychopaths, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Normal, everyday things could just flip that switch and there you are. I mean, so that's a bunch of BS, if you ask me. (laughs) So this is very interesting. And I think you guys will find this very ironic. In January 2017, the Global News did a story on Mark searching for love from prison from CanadianInmateConnect.com. I'm shook that they would let him on the internet. But here we are, people. 2017, he's hitting up chicks left and right. I cannot believe it. I feel like that should be like a part of sentencing. Like, you are not allowed to go on the internet. In his profile, Mark says that he was up in the air about reaching out because he was doubtful that anyone could look past what he did and see him as a human being, saying that his crime doesn't defy him when, yes, it does, absolutely, it does. You killed a person like you're sick. He says, quote, I made some terrible, regrettable choices in the past and I've come to terms with the consequences. Now I seek to infuse purpose into my life connection is a huge part of that. Well guess what, dude? You ruined that as soon as you killed somebody. You should not be meant to have any joy anymore. Mark says that he enjoys tennis, chess, and clever storytelling and he looks uh, and he is looking for an interesting, intelligent, open-minded, delightful, and perfect woman to relate to and share his amusing observations with. Where are these inmates play tennis? Where's that? What is this? A country club? I don't know. He goes further to say, I'm insightful, passionate, and philosophical with a great sense of humor. I love the rain and the music of artists like (laughs) Psy, which is funny, Jackie Ivanko and Arcade Fire. So I did not picture him as a Psy lover, but here we are. Gillis, the one who got away, actually wrote a book in 2016 called The One Who Got Away, <laughs> which is his personal account of his near-death experience. I, I found that whenever I was doing research, but I didn't have time to read it before we did this, but I would like to go back and, um, and read that. There's also another book that was written about this by Stephen LeBon called The Devil's Cinema, The Untold Story Behind Mark Twitchell's Kill Room. So, there's a lot of good things out there if you want to watch, watch more about it, if you want to read about it, just Google his name um, and you'll be able to find anything you want to know. The sources that I used was the famouspeople.com, TrueCrimedition.com, and CBA.ca, which is a Canada news um, news station. So that is Episode 64, the Dexter copycat killer. I hope that I could tell you something new. And I am shocked that I did not know about this guy because he's a real piece of work. But I hope he never finds love. And I hope he gets to play tennis by himself for years to come. And I hope in 2036 he does not get out because this dude is nuts. So let me know how you're feeling about it. What's your view on tennis in prison and how you feel about this whole art imitating life, imitating death situation that we've got going on. I hope you all have a lovely day and I will see you next time. Bye.